start the whole thing again? I Welcome back. Like <laughs> <laughs> yeah, let's start again. Yeah. Welcome back. You're listening to In Situ Science, where each episode we meet a different scientist and find out what a career in science is like behind the scenes. I'm your host, James O'Hanlon, and this episode I'm chatting with herpetologist, geneticist, and science educator, Dr. Siobhan Dennison. Siobhan. Hey, James. Welcome. Thanks for having me. (laughs) (laughs) So uh, I want to start by asking, do you miss the laboratory? Do I miss the laboratory? Yes. Yes and no. I uh, I do I I do miss doing yeah I, I do miss um, doing genetics in the lab mm-hmm. and I miss sort of the methodical nature of it and sort of getting into that meditative state and working with things I can't see to find some cool answers <laughs> to questions. Sorry, sorry. There's a large dog here for this podcast. <laughs> He's causing trouble, so <laughs> he might be interrupted every now and again. Hey, buddy. <laughs> so yeah, no, I, I do. I do miss um, being in the lab and doing research. I have to admit, I yeah. um, I feel like I've been out of it for about six months now, and um, yeah, it's really. Which, which bit yeah. though? The which the practice of it, the methodical meditative yeah, side of miss, lab work. I miss. I miss seeing the whole thing through. I miss that like, you know coming up with the ideas and going out into the field to collect data and coming back and doing stuff in the lab and mm. seeing what answers you get out of it. It's, it was just really great. But at the same time, I really love what I'm doing now. I really love, um, I, I work with kids and communicate science to, to kids from the ages of basically four to 16 or something now. And I'm, mm. I'm really enjoying that too in, in different ways. It brings different um, different kind of satisfaction to it. So yeah. I think, you know, I, I do miss research, but I get to work with, with academics now still trying to develop new activities for the kids mm. and things like that. So I feel like I still have some sort of connection to that world as well. Well, yeah, you're, you're very much still in the, the sphere yeah. of... of well, I, I guess so. universities and academia and science. Yeah. But let's right. we'll start by talking about your your sordid past as a geneticist. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you, you worked in conservation genetics. Yeah, I I guess yeah, population genetics and um, so looking at genetics of wild wild animals, mm. wild populations, and using that to inform conservation. So basically, what what you do is as at least what I did as a population geneticist was go out into the field and collect samples from animals in different um, of the same species in different areas and looked how looked at how um, genetically similar those those areas were those um, little populations were and mm. that kind of gives you an idea of how much gene flow occurs between those areas so how much movement there might be among those areas and whether um, whether they're isolated from each other, maybe by mm. geographic barriers such as mountain ranges or roads or things like that. And um, if we know, you know, what populations are isolated from, from the others, then maybe they need more attention for conservation and things like that. Um, yeah. Or maybe translocations need to occur to maintain gene flow because if you have isolated populations, eventually um, inbreeding can start to occur. And I think... Any layperson would know that inbreeding is kind of a bad thing. So, yep, yep say no more. So um, <laughs> that, that's, that's essentially what what population geneticists. Kind so, of so your samplings do. are wild populations, and if you have a cluster of individuals that are all closely related genetically, you know that they might be some sort of family group or yeah, are all interbreeding. Yeah. So, um, for example, for, for my PhD, I was looking at um, a threatened species of lizard in the Northern Territory and their family group structure. So, mm-hmm. what I was doing there was um, sampling individuals from lots of different burrow systems. They all lived in little tunnel systems. Well, not little. They were actually quite substantial <laughs> little tunnel systems under the ground. And um, by comparing the relatedness. Um, of the individuals in each burrow to 
you know, relatedness between individuals from different boroughs. Relatedness as in genetic yeah, similarity. Yeah, so you can, a particular level of re- relatedness would suggest, um, you know, full siblings like brothers and sisters, mm. or if you have, you have 50% similarity to your parents, for example. Yeah. So by sort of taking these measurements, you can, you can work out essentially the family relationships between those individuals. And so it was, it was kind of a mixed bag in that population, but there were some, um, some groups that I found a mum and a dad and up to eight babies in a, in a biosystem from, that were born in different years. So I could, by measuring them, I knew that they had each been born in different years, but they were all full siblings. So what mm. that told me was that the mum and dad had actually been together across at least... Um, three to six years mm. in that same burrow system with those individuals. So and these are these are great desert skinks. Great right? desert skinks. That's right. And you don't really think of reptiles as being the family type. So no. it was it was kind of nice to <laughs> nice to see these. Yeah, it is adorable. <laughs> I remember on my first my first field trip, I I caught this tiny little newborn baby. I named him Buster because he was always caught with his mother. Mm. And I don't know if you've seen Arrested Development, but <laughs> Buster is the mummy's boy. Yeah. And um, <laughs> so, and then by the end of the my four-year project or f- four-year field stint, um, he was old enough to to be the, the adult male in, in his burrow system and just catching the same individual, individuals each year over and over again. It was kind of nice. Got to know, got to know my you lizards. Got a little <laughs> soap opera of yeah, lizard families going recognize on. recognise them by the end of it. And Buster even could, he, um, I can't, I could never work out if he was really smart or really dumb, but <laughs> you'd, you'd set up a trap. We'd set up traps at sunset and come back first thing in the morning before the sun got high enough to make the traps hot again because they're in these little metal mm. box traps. And um, I'd set a trap and I'd walk away to set traps at the next at the next burrow system and I'd hear this snap <laughs> and he'd already gone in. <laughs> and often I'd just you know, count that as, yep, okay, he was captured that evening and I'd just let him go because I didn't want him to, <laughs> to be in there all night. But then he'd go snap and he'd be back in there again. And, yeah, I mean, there's lots of big snakes and mulgara and things that like to eat great desert skinks around in that area. So I wasn't sure if he was, you know... He's stupid he knew for getting was, trapped or... Yeah, well, there were baited traps too. So, you know, he's free food and he's safe for the evening once he's in the trap. <laughs> I, ca- I caught him almost every night. <laughs> and then there were others I've maybe caught once in a, in a blue moon. So, yeah, it was pretty funny. Uh, how long has it been now since you've seen your little lizard friends then? I my last trip was 2013. I just got a, a Facebook reminder saying this happened four <laughs> years ago and it was really sad. <laughs> so, yeah, I'm going to have to get back out there for a visit and, yeah. and, and go and set, out, set a few traps and say hi to Buster. Anyway, I, I microchip them all so I'll be able to tell if it's him. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure that would be probably really nice to go back to a study site without... The pressure of collecting data and I all that sort so. of stuff. Yeah, I've always daydreamed about it. I, I keep threatening to go, but I just haven't had the chance. But yeah, I'll have to go sometime soon. <laughs> well, you spent a lot of time out in arid Australia. Yeah. Well, tell me about the desert. So. What what oh, keeps what you coming back know? to the desert? I don't know. It was it was funny. I I won't lie to you. Part of the reason I chose the project was because. I was going to be spending some time in the desert and I'd never been to the desert before. And yeah, I don't know. It was this strange, I don't know. I felt instantly connected to it when I, when I first arrived and just how dynamic the place is. You know, the first, the first trip we did, I arrived and a few days later we had wildfires going throughout the whole property and me and my supervisors ended up trying to fight fires and I, I got taken up in a Cessna and was reporting down to the ground saying where the fires were and where they had to go to put them out and things like that and then literally the end of that week we were rained in and almost couldn't make it back to Alice Springs to to get my volunteers back to the airport and then you know the landscape was just this basically red and black while I was there and then mm. I came back a few months later and it was just starting to sprout again it was really amazing and then a year later it was just completely green and all the wildflowers were out and like every time I went there was something different and special about it and yeah we were on this property about 
350 k's northwest of Alice Springs called New Haven and um, it was yeah ages from Alice Springs and then the closest um, Aboriginal community out there was Neeropee which was about another 80 k's out so you kind of felt like you were the only people on the planet when you were Mm. out there it was just as far as you could see beautiful landscape you used to hike up onto the ridgetops and camp up there and you'd wake up in the middle of the night to a full moon and you could actually see the curvature of the earth <laughs> from it was just amazing and I know it sounds really cheesy but it's a real amazing time for contemplation and mm. just you know you, you could wake up and there'd be a little little wallaby next to you just minding its own business or often found geckos under my under my swag and things like that and it was just I mean you can you can probably have those experiences in many different environments but I just I loved the the boom and bust of it and I loved the um I don't know it was just a really humbling experience like you literally can die out there and Mm. you know it's but it's a beautiful place it's a it's a brutal place but it's I really loved it and it's funny because I did a lot of traveling before my PhD and just most mostly through Europe and Asia and um I I was always trying to get out of Australia to to visit places and I always Mm. thought everything else was so exciting and but then I often did find myself to comparing things to home and I always thought of the the landscape in Australia is going to sound terrible and people are going to hate me for saying this but it's a bit boring you know we didn't have these enormous mountain ranges like Mm. in the Himalayas and things like that and I wasn't really that excited by it Mm. but I still remember to this day my very first trip when I drove out there I was driving I drove out with my dad Mm. and we were driving along and it just kind of occurred to me that there was these little sort of hills here and there throughout the the really dry parts and little mound, ro- mounds of rock and this kind of thing. And I just it just kind of occurred to me that these mountains were once, well, these, these little bumps in the landscape were once mountains the size of the Himalayas. And it's just this, you know, the, the vast amount of time that it's taken for these these mountains to be eroded down into the tiny little the bumps on the horizon that you see it was just this kind of epiphany realizing Mm. just how ancient the landscape is and how how unique it is how yeah it was just this really sudden switch went off in my mind where I just kind of fell in love with it and Mm. um yeah I don't I don't really know how to describe it I feel like you have to (laughs) You have to feel it to know what well, I'm I mean, talking if, if about. If you haven't been there and you just picture the desert in your head, it's, I mean, the word desert is, you know, a metaphor for barren, nothing, yeah. lifeless, static. Yeah, yeah that's right. And but it, your description sounds nothing like that. It's nothing like that. It's, there's so much life out there and it's just the most amazing reptiles. I mean, that's the, the main thing I was seeing, obviously, but amazing animals amazing plants and they're all built to survive i mean everything is of course but they've just got these really amazing adaptations for such a harsh environment and i just i don't know i just find the whole thing really beautiful Mm. just you know thriving despite adversity (laughs) in a really (laughs) harsh environment (laughs) but but I think for me it really is those time scales it's really evident in in that part of the world I think Mm. you're driving along in like places like Ellery Creek you can see fossils in the rock and um you know they they go throughout throughout time because the it's an area where the the ground has been reefed up at 90 degrees so as you get closer to the waterhole you actually go back in time in the rock and you can mm. see different fossils going um, going across the landscape and just, I don't know, just, uh, it's just indescribable. I love it. Yeah. I, think I mean, it's, it's totally <laughs> alien to me because most of my field work's been in the tropics where your turnover is so fast and there's just constant growth and death mm. and you go to a field site one year and then you come back the next year and 
the trees that you were looking at last year just aren't there anymore. Yeah. They've decomposed and been replaced with something else, and it's or a cyclone has come through and flattened the place, and everything's regrown from scratch. It's a really different type of of dynamic. Yeah, exactly. It's dynamic in a very different way. Mm-mm. Yeah, it's it's funny you look at yeah, there's such you know the real hardwoods and things like that that grow really slowly, and you got these trees about this big. Was it? 15 centimetres for the people listening yeah, sure. at home. <laughs> <laughs> Yay big. <laughs> but these trees, you know, they're you know, decades old and quite quite small, but they, I don't, I don't even know what I'm trying to say, but they're just, they're there every time you go there. <laughs> yeah. There's nothing really, well, nothing changes and everything changes. Mm. Like I said before, the first time I went, it was just like a Mars landscape after the fires went through. It was just charred blackness on red soil Mm. and then a a year or two later when I went it was after a really good rainy season and it was amazing carpets of purple and yellow flowers and Mm. just so much life and it's catching a hell of a lot more lizards too (laughs) it was really (laughs) nice but yeah it was a special part of the world I'm aching to get back well you're so you, as you mentioned before, you've moved on from research into the world of science education, mm-hmm. but you haven't stopped traveling. No, <laughs> <laughs> no, I haven't. I just got back from a week away today. What were you doing? I was driving around the mid-north coast, um, mm-hmm. Tari, Kempsey, and Gloucester, if that, if that can be called the coast. Um, Close enough. Not yeah. really, but yeah. <laughs> Um, we deliver workshops to, to primary school kids across northern New South Wales. So I work for an organisation called UNE Discovery, the mm-hmm. University of New England. Um, it's, it's the new sort of outreach and engagement, science outreach and engagement program. And um, there's a team of about nine of us that, um, that do this on a weekly basis. We drive mm. out, sorry, Wally's got hold of his squeaky ball. <laughs> <laughs> he wants Funny. to play fetch. <laughs> so yeah, the the program is this really great initiative where um, we have a, a bus that um, takes takes science activities from a whole range of disciplines out to schools, especially in rural and regional areas where um, the kids might not have the resources at the schools that kids in the cities have. Um, <laughs> And also often, you know, teachers might not have the, the science knowledge required for some of the activities um, mm. or to, you know, yeah, it, it's, it's, it's just nice because we're a team of scientists and science educators who, who can travel around to these places and bring the science to the kids rather than them having to travel to the cities to mm. come and see it. So, yeah, it's... it's so we, you're, you're a travelling... Travelling show. bus show. of science wonder yeah exactly <laughs> what what sort of it's science <laughs> everything we have um well today i was doing school of ants so looking at different ant species in mm. the kids playground um we have physics of sound chemistry paleontology precision agriculture mm. um pollinators 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 <laughs> i said that really weird <laughs> pollinators. Um, <laughs> Got it, Dylan. Good. Uh, science of soils. Yeah. Uh, sports science. Living Latin, which is a um, kind of a classification craft mm. activity we do with the kids. Like they're really exploratory and play-based activities, so it's just kind of a nice change for the kids, and it's a real, um, real engaging sort of activity for so them to do. I picture it as like Happy Harold, but for science. That's way better than Happy, Happy Harold. Are there puppets involved? There's what? no puppets involved, James. No. <laughs> <laughs> There's... Should we put him inside? <laughs> He's really wants to play. He's very playful right now. He's excited He's that fine. I just got home. <laughs> um, yeah, so it's allowing kids to explore science and to find things out for themselves and to you know ask their own questions and discover things for themselves I think is a much more effective way of teaching them than 
anything you could do standing up in front of a class and just talking at them. And I think that's the really great thing about what we do is we are scientists, so we all have that that background and knowledge and, and we can draw on extra, you know, outside expertise to, to answer the kids' questions and um, bring in real-life examples of what we're mm. doing and all that sort of thing. And um, I think it's really evident to the kids too that we're really passionate about it and and excited about what we're there to do. And, mm. you know, I was, get, I was really interested in science education for a while and I used to um, get involved when I was working at the Australian Museum and get involved with some of the scientists for a day school mm. holiday programs and things like that and get involved with as much of the community science communication outreach stuff as I could and um, I guess I started thinking that I, I really love seeing that light bulb moment when a kid gets something or realizes how interesting something is mm. that they didn't find interesting before and I think that's where I felt like I could make a real impact yeah even if it's just on a couple of individuals, it just felt really rewarding. And um, when I had the opportunity to try doing that as, as a career, I just I haven't really looked back from it. And I, I really love talking to people, <laughs> and I love I love teaching people. Something and you I can't think, do in a laboratory. No, right? it's exactly that's right. That is something I don't miss about the laboratory is how solitary it is. And mm. I really do like talking to people and. You know, not not being a know-it-all, but I like I like telling people about things <laughs> and how things work, and um, and it's amazing. Like almost every day, you you finish a workshop and a kid comes up and says, "This has been the best day ever," or "I want to be a pollination biologist." I mean, what <laughs> six-year-old says that? <laughs> so it's you know, I feel like it's a really great um, a really great program, and a lot of especially in those regional rural areas, um, you know, if, if you're not exposed to these things, how do you even know that it's a possibility for, mm-hmm. for a career? And a lot of the kids, you know, when, when you first say to them, you know, what, what do you want to be when you grow up? And it's like, I want to be a football player. I want to be a farmer. I want to be mm. a hunter, some <laughs> of them say. And, you know, not that any of those aren't completely valid, but it's not until the end of a day of exposure to other types of um other possibilities that they start to think that they might like to try a bit of science mm. or go to uni or or something like that you know it's it's not really something they've even envisioned before and i think it's really important for them to at least have the the exposure to that well, do you think that these kind of experiences were the kind of experiences that led you to a career in science? Or? Oh, that's a tough question. <laughs> I don't think so. I wish I had those experiences. Yeah. Right? I was very lucky that I had a family that were very interested in science. Like mm. my my dad had a big telescope and we'd, you know, we'd put on <laughs> put on Pink Floyd <laughs> and, <laughs> and and put blankets on the veranda and, and look through the telescope and lie and watch the stars and dad was very much into environmental science and my, um you know we there was always talk of science in the house and um in fact my sister was a total science nerd growing up and you know subscribed to all the science magazines and things like that and I actually wasn't really that interested in science um at school mm. I was more into my music and stuff like that and somehow along the way We've totally switched careers and she's a professional musician and I'm a scientist. <laughs> I don't know what happens. It's really nice though because we can keep each other in touch with with those other mm. things. But um, yeah, I wouldn't say it was exposure to those that did it. It was actually at the right time exposure to some really good science communicators, science educators and teachers like just my year 11 teacher Mm. high school I hated I hated science until um I got to (laughs) until I got to senior science at at my high school and it was actually a physics teacher and I was going to go to uni to do physics Mm. and then when I got into my first year biology lecture the lecturer was just 
so engaging, so much fun that I just kept kind of doing biology subjects because mm. I felt like everyone in, in the department at that time was actually really fun and engaging. <laughs> Not that they aren't now, but, you know, <laughs> like it was really fun time to be around doing biology at that time and there was a lot of really interesting it, that's the thing it's it's who you're exposed to who's teaching you you know some people can be amazing researchers but not very good teachers mm. and you, you know it doesn't matter how much you know about a topic if you can't communicate it in a exciting or inspiring way it's kind of lost on on your audience and that was for me what it was it was just someone I could tell was so passionate and so inspired and excited about what they were telling me I just wanted to learn more mm. and it, I literally just kind of fell into it I wasn't <laughs> I you know I wasn't planning on doing honours but I did I certainly wasn't doing a PhD after I finished honours and it just kind of one thing led to another and that's kind of how it happened really. Is it a little bit scary that all it can take is one passionate teacher yeah. to completely switch a person's... It's terrifying because the, the <laughs> flip that around and it can just take one teacher to totally turn you off that track as well, mm. one bad teacher. So I think it's so important to have, um, to have good role models for these sorts of, these sorts of things. And um, I like to think that I... I'm a passionate communicator of science and then I might have that sort of impact on at least one or two kids. I'd be happy if that's all it did. But, so um, what is it about science, though? So you're right, uh, inspiring these kids with your passion about science at the same time other people are out inspiring these kids with passion about sports or agriculture or uh, art or whatever other well, careers are out there. Honestly, I think science transcends all of those things. I know it sounds really cheesy, but it's kind of a way of thinking. And I think, I don't think um, art or sports or any of those subjects are any less valid at all. I think science encourages critical thinking and, you know, thinking for yourself and trying to find answers based on evidence that is available to you and that sort of thing. And I think that is so important on so many levels, just mm. to be a functional human being who <laughs> thinks for themselves is such a, an important life skill. I don't know what you think. But, um, but I, I don't know, maybe I'm, maybe I'm a bit romantic about all this, but, it, you know, science is literally everywhere around you and we, we live it. I mean, especially as a biologist, you know, it's, I, I see I'm just going for a walk, you know, you see pollinators visiting different little flowers and you see you know a spider catching its meal in a web and all that sort of thing I mean that's that's nature but you, it I wouldn't be as aware of that stuff if I hadn't studied science and for yeah. me it's been a really eye-opening experience I just look at the world in a different way to m maybe even other people I know who haven't it's again not any more or less valid it's just um I don't know if you... Well, it reaches a point almost where science stops being a, a perspective and a topic and just starts being reality. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's like, replaces religion for me. <laughs> <laughs> this is really stupid. No, but, but it's, no, but it's, it's like, you know, you feel part of a whole and it's, you don't, you know, it's, it's this really nice, like, you, you can... You can look at things and understand how they work or not understand how they work, but you can, you're kind of filled with a sense of wonder. And yeah, like I said, it's not, it's not necessarily about the topic of science. It's the, the, that, that method that asking a question and trying to find the answer to it and maybe then communicating that <laughs> to people. I don't know, well, but it's... I mean, something we talk about on this podcast a, a lot or every now and again is the point where science and art intersect yeah. in that yeah. it's a way of exploring ideas and yeah, exploring yeah. patterns and concepts. Yeah, you're right. So it's, it's exploring ideas, exploring, yeah, the, the way you feel about things or 
or expressing the way you feel about things and mm. and science is is a similar is a similar thing where you have you have questions and you try to find the answers to those what's well, it's, it's almost a, like you know your your chosen medium for exploring an idea some yeah. people do it with pastels <laughs> other people do it with uh, genetics and you know, other people do it with geology and but this, this <laughs> it's it's an incredibly creative undertaking i think a lot of i've i've actually had quite a few people say to me in the past that don't you don't you find that science just takes all the beauty out of the world because you don't look at something and just appreciate it as a whole you start deconstructing it or you you can you start being pedantic and explaining that no that's not a big beautiful male spider it's a female because it's got the bigger body than the male and you know it's mm. got a bigger body because she can lay more eggs and that makes her more makes her fitness higher so that you know it's it's people have often gotten funny at me when I've started to try and explain things to them where on a bushwalk or something like that and they think mm. that I'm being a boring scientist by explaining how everything works rather than just just going oh wow isn't that cool and moving on mm. but I think it is quite the opposite in that you can see you can see all these things working together to to make a whole mm. organism or a whole environment or ecosystem and it's there, there's an obvious passion here for sharing yeah. science not just doing science but sharing it with other people and communicating yeah. it does that played a role in this this career move from research into yeah, education kind of, yeah i think um i was umming and ahhing for a long time about whether or not i should go into teaching or something like that because i was really enjoying communicating science and just you know cool fun facts and things like that and I had my little radio segment every week in Sydney just talking about weird animals in science and mm. I really disliked communicating that stuff so when when I had the opportunity to move to Armadale and 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 actually start a teaching degree at that stage I was just thinking you know I'll get a casual job on the side and get through my degree as quickly as possible so I can get out and start teaching but then I came across Kirsty Abbott and you know any discovery she's sort of the overarching um goddess <laughs> that has <laughs> that has begun and and kept discovery going amazing person and um she's such a an inspiring and, and passionate communicator as well that I just I find that I've kind of been opened up to this whole a new sort of motivation, a new inspiration to do it. Um, showing kids that they can do this stuff and they don't even need us there to do it. It's just showing them firsthand that all they need to do is have the questions and want to explore and they can go and do that stuff in their own time in the mm. in the playground. They can they often there was a kid today actually. We um I just finished doing an ant workshop with them. We were collecting ants for the school of ants citizen science project and um, they went off for lunch and I was walking off to the staff room and three kids came up and said Siobhan Siobhan can we go collect ants <laughs> and I was like I've, I've actually got to go and do some stuff but here's some here's some forceps and here's a magnifying glass go nuts and they went and they spent the whole time collecting ants and they came up with a little little vial full of them for me to bring back to <laughs> to UNE and you know they they were the kids that weren't really that into them when we started the class that morning. Mm. They, one girl came up and said to me, Siobhan, I'm never stepping on another ant again. <laughs> and it's just sort of, you know, that bringing that awareness and, you know, suddenly these kids are, are excited about little black dots running around on the ground. Yeah. And I still remember having the re revelation that science is just being able to count and that's all that's all that it is really and, and anyone can do that yeah and you, you think science is this very big fancy complicated thing but every experiment can just be narrowed down to counting mm -hmm. numbers <laughs> you know for my experiments i was sitting out in the middle of a rainforest and counting the number of bees that flew past a particular thing 
Other people will make it more complicated and use a fancy machine to count the number of blips from a star mm. you know, light years away. But essentially all it is, is is being able to use numbers. Yeah. And what you do with those numbers is, is I guess, the creative bit and the interpretive bit. But as long as you can count, you can do science. Yeah, that's absolutely true. But you mentioned very briefly that you've gone back to university so not only are you working in education, but you've made the step to go back. Yeah. And do another degree yep. in education. How's that going? It's interesting. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> it genuinely is. <laughs> okay. So was it and sure what that term was? Well, yeah. I mean, this the subject I'm doing this term isn't great, but it's, <laughs> no, it's been funny. Like, because all through my PhD and honours, like, I... It was great researching my own stuff, but at the same time, I felt like, you know, when you do your PhD, for example, you, you're you an expert in a very specific thing, mm. like like the family life of social lizards in the Australian desert. Mm. And it's I was always kind of yearning f- to go back to coursework because I felt like I had, there was so much more broad knowledge to be gained doing you remember you know doing undergrad you just get you get thrown so many different things and you have knowledge over such a broad range of stuff and of course you're doing your PhD too but I I was really (laughs) missing that you know doing lots of different subjects so I was really excited to do that when I came back to uni Mm. I I will admit the subjects sound a little dry because because I'm doing my master's of teaching I have all the science content down and I'm just doing sort of you know curriculum subjects and classroom management subjects and you know education theory subjects and stuff Mm. like that but it's actually been really great because you and a discovery um i've been and also you know i was teaching undergrad biology and stuff um at macquarie and so i've I've taught in that capacity before and then i've I've been doing all the stuff with discovery and teaching to K to 10 kids in years K to 10 at schools. So I was kind of picking stuff up along the way and learning from other people I was working with, you know, how to manage a class or how to communicate things effectively to kids of all ages and all that kind of thing. So when I started the degree, it, it all started to fall into place. Like I could actually name the techniques I was using mm. or, you know, name the theory that we were using for um, the way we were teaching and stuff like that. And it, it's like they've been complementing each other really nice. So the, the move out of academia for lots of scientists is this, it's a really scary proposition. Mm. Have you been able to see your your academic past as a stepping stone towards this new career path or does it still feel like a almost like a tangent you know a right turn somewhere oh i think i feel like it's a stepping stone i mean it's certainly i know this sounds i hate i hate to say this but having the academic background and saying you know i we always get asked by teachers so what are your qualifications (laughs) and and they do take me much more seriously knowing that I have that background Mm. rather than a lot of them assume that we're undergrads from UNE doing Mm. this on the side and that kind of thing but we're all professionals in our own right Mm. um so in a way that's helped but also just I've been able to draw on a lot of the contacts that I've made from those from that time to help with things or um just that I mean, you get so much training for skills that you don't even know you have when you're doing, when you're in academia and when you do your PhD, you know, organising field work and managing budgets and projects mm. and um, communicating and, you know, all these sorts of things that certainly are skills that I might not have gotten in other jobs. Mm. Did you realise you were getting those skills at the time? No, not at all. <laughs> Not at all. And I find myself more and more realising how 
yeah, how much experience I actually have gained from that kind of thing. And so, I don't know, I really I look back on it more or less fondly. <laughs> <laughs> um, but it was a very daunting thing to make the decision to go. Like I was in a, I, I thought, quite a good position where I was, had lots mm. of you know, opportunities for networking and, and development and um, just just doing really interesting work at, at the museum. I mean, I did make the decision quite quickly, I guess, but it, there was a lot of, am I doing the right thing? And mm. I'm in a really good position right now. I'm stupid to leave now. And, you know, I still have some contact with the guys there and they're doing really, really cool stuff. And <laughs> And I do think about that a lot, but... I also know that I was like stressed out a lot of the time and Mm. put a lot of pressure on myself a lot of the time. And um, I won't say what I do now is easy, but I I don't even know how to describe it. It's like I work just as much as I ever did, Mm. but I don't have that constant feeling like I'm not doing enough or that I'm not achieving enough or, you know, just... Mm. That's yeah, is it almost like what's what's expected of you is more tangible. Mm. Whereas when you're a research scientist and you are essentially a, a, a freelance performance artist in a way, that there's no limit, there's no... Nothing is ever good enough. And yeah. That sounds very bleak. I mean, but, <laughs> but, you, but you do genuinely put that kind of pressure on yourself. You do, mm. you, you always feel like everyone around you is achieving more than you so you have to keep up Mm. and and I definitely felt like that and I remember especially yeah towards the end of my my PhD writing and I found myself and I was doing analysis stuff and I was really struggling just you know mentally and and physically and I um I just I remember I I went to see a counsellor about it because I was really anxious and I was saying you know I just can't keep up like these people they're so good at you know stats and they're really like I just I don't know what I'm doing and I'm just useless and I feel like I'm treading water all the time and all this kind of stuff and she was like Siobhan you're always comparing your weaknesses to other people's strengths and like she sort of pointed out to me that there are these other strengths like you know all the field work I've done and Mm. it's good in the lab and and this kind of thing. And then when I started to think about it, I'm like, oh, yeah, a lot of people ask me for help in the lab and kind of realising that I do have strengths mm. and maybe I'm not as strong in other aspects, but that's okay. No one is strong mm. in everything. But when you are constantly surrounded by people that are at the top of their field, mm. you know, people with PhDs are doing a lot of really good stuff. It's, it's and a competitive really, field. It's a it, very it competitive weeds field. weeds people out very quickly. <laughs> and you, but it's so easy to forget that because that's the norm. Mm. And you, you realise that what is normal for that group of people isn't normal for, for a Humans. lot of the population. <laughs> <laughs> and, you, yeah, it's, it's something that you don't really realise until someone on the outside kind of says to you, this isn't, this isn't what most people go through <laughs> <laughs> well i remember uh, realizing yeah after my phd i got a couple of jobs outside of research and it took me a while to yeah i guess like you say calm down a bit and realize was, that people actually appreciate your, your, your skills oh like yeah <laughs> <laughs> I, should, I should put a call out to, to Kelly Tagaland, who I interviewed on this podcast. I worked for her for a while. And it blew my mind because the first week in the office working for this company called Code Club, the, these people would just kind of come out of the blue and s- say to my face, you're doing an amazing job. Mm. You're a really valuable team member. It's great to have you here. And it's something I'd never heard before yeah. in my entire professional career <laughs> yeah. and 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 thinking back on it yeah i was a really good worker because i was just constantly competing with the person sitting at the desk next to me without even realizing that's what i was doing yeah it's a really different uh, it's a weird mindset you end up in 
Yeah, and it's not even like you're consciously competing with people no. during in in your PhD or whatever. You just that it's more that you feel like you're trying to keep up all the time because you feel like they're all working harder than you are, so you better mm. put your head down. <laughs> At least that's how I felt anyway. And I don't know, just and some people are just naturally that way inclined. They just are brilliant, and I'm mm. not brilliant. And found it really hard to. <laughs> no, but it's true. Like I, you know, I I didn't feel like I was naturally that high level, and I felt like I had to really work myself into the ground to to stay afloat. But I don't think anyone's naturally that high yeah. level. When I think about the people that I know that are. Top of their game, super productive, really competitive scientists. They pay the price. Mm. Yeah, no, you're right. You're right. And, and it is about those people that are, are willing to, to work that much harder mm. than you are. And, and At what cost? <laughs> we said we wouldn't talk about it. No. <laughs> <laughs> but is, is it... Coming from a university environment, you you also did lots of university teaching. Mm-hmm. What's it like now going back to doing assignments and being on the other side of it and knowing, you know, having that insight into what goes on behind the scenes uh-huh. in terms of, you know, administration and that I sort think of stuff? On the one hand, I'm a bit more relaxed about it than I was in undergrad, like yeah. when I did my science degree, because... I know that I'm okay and I'm going to pass and that's all right because I kind of know what is expected at that level. Mm. But at the same time, having marked hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of essays and assignments, I am now, I I almost put more pressure on myself because I don't want to be that really annoying person who just doesn't (laughs) get the assignment or just... You know, you can see they're, they're on the right track but just missed miss the point or, you know, something like yeah. that. So I spend a lot more time going over stuff. I think I'm that, you know, that annoying... You're the mature, mature age student. student. <laughs> <laughs> but I don't constantly email the lecturer. So Asking stupid questions, yeah. yeah. I keep <laughs> my mouth shut. <laughs> it's, um, this is a terrible stereotype. <laughs> But, well, but I think I teaching as a teacher, I was always I loved the mature age students because they were really interested and and all over stuff. Mm. So I don't see the mature age student as a. As no, a you're one people. of them. No, I'm one of them. <laughs> They're great. <laughs> <laughs> so you. You mentioned you moved up to Armadale yes. for the degree and for this job. Before that, you were doing research back in Sydney. Yeah. Do you think the geographic move helped with you know, sort of demarcating the career move? I honestly don't think... Oh. You can edit this out if you want. <laughs> so... My partner got a job at UNE. Yeah, well, what's he do? Research. He's a he's oh, you know I don't know he's a he's a biologist. Yeah, sort. is he good looking? He's, he's he's rugged. Sounds like a great rugged guy. And manly. Sounds <laughs> giggles a lot. <laughs> and uh, so when he got the job up at at New England, yeah, um, that was the point at which I just decided. I'm going to take the plunge. Yeah. And I honestly don't think I would have ever taken that plunge if yeah. if it wasn't a if it wasn't for that. And I think, you know, now I have my moments where it's like, you know, what would I be doing now if I'd stayed in research? I know I'm a lot happier now doing what I'm doing. Mm. Um but if I'd stayed I I don't think I would have um, I think I've changed a lot personally. Like I, I feel a lot more um, relaxed about stuff, and um, and I kind of know where I want to head. Mm. Whereas before, 
I kind of always had this feeling of, okay, I've got a six-month contract. I've got to, you know, try and work really, really, really hard so I can get it renewed and also maybe look for stuff on the side in case it doesn't and, mm. and you know, funding issues and all that sort of stuff and not knowing. And while I'm not on permanent stuff now, I'm still, I've got the degree and I know that I'm on a particular trajectory. Mm. Um and at least that'll that'll do me for the next five years. <laughs> but no, but genuinely, I, you know, when when you're in that that research field, you're always throwing carrots. You're always, you know, there's always some glimmer of the next job there. But yeah. you, and so you take whatever opportunities come, as as you always should. You should mm. always take opportunities as they come. But um, I think. I would have just kept going like that until until I don't know what. Maybe maybe I would have got a, a longer term job, maybe I would have burnt out. I don't know. Mm. But um yeah, having I won't say that decision was made for me, but that when that happened and the opportunity was there to go, I thought stuff it, you know, I, yeah. it was I I've always kind of played it a bit safe. And I kind of, it kind of felt like a good time just to see what happens. And I knew if worst came to the worst, I could come back to Sydney with my tail between my legs <laughs> and I'd always be fine. No, it, it sounds silly, but it was a really scary decision to make. Yeah. To, to it's a career change. A career. It's a big yeah. deal. And um, so far it hasn't come back to haunt me. Well, maybe, so. maybe we'll check back in with you in five years time when you're... Yeah. Having to deal with the same kids day in, day out, and stuff. <laughs> we'll see. Whatever. Who knows? I might I might pack it all in and take up my silversmithing career. <laughs> <laughs> go back to the, the orchestra. Yeah, why not? Yeah. <laughs> so, well, we should probably finish up, but okay. if people want to find out more about the stuff we're doing, they can just look up UNE Discovery. Yeah, UNE Discovery Voyager. Mm-hmm. .org.au and, and you're on Twitter too. People can follow your journey. I am on Twitter. Yeah. Intermittently. <laughs> Sib underscore D. At Sib underscore D. Sure. Well, thanks for coming on and, and being frank and honest and, and sharing your story. Thanks for having me. And thanks, Wally, for thanks, Wally. making noise and interrupting us. Making <laughs> balls. And thank you guys for listening. You can follow us on Twitter with the handle at Institute Science. Check out our website. We're on YouTube, Facebook, Instagram, all that sort of stuff. Thanks for being on, Javon. Thanks, Thanks for listening. We'll see you guys next time. Bye.